So if you would turn with me this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of First Peter. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, there should be one under your chair or the chair next to you. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you, bring it back with you in future weeks. Uh, the book of First Peter is on page 1016, the chapter that we're going to be in. In those Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 4. We're continuing a series that we began a few weeks ago in First Peter, and as we've done it, we've continued to return to this theme of exiles. Um, exiles being, that's how Peter addresses his audience and how the Bible addresses us as people living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. And in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, we experience and we observe a lot of senseless evil, a lot of senseless suffering, such as the kind that we just prayed for in France this past weekend. Now, some suffering makes sense to us, right? If somebody is trying to get a degree in college and they fail out, and that, that's a kind of suffering. And you ask them, well, what, what happened? You know, why'd you fail out? Well, I never went to class. I never studied. I never listened to the professor. I never did the homework. Okay, like that, that kind of suffering makes some sense to us. You, you know, you, I think we can all say, okay, you kind of you earned yourself that one. And uh, on the flip side, we see that a lot of times if you put in the work, if you put in the effort, that good things may happen to you. You know, a lot of bosses don't fire bad employees a lot of professors don't fail good students. A lot of landlords don't kick out good tenants. Um, but the problem is we can tend to think that if I simply live a good life, if I simply make the right decisions, apply myself, and try to be a good person towards others, then in general, good things will happen to me. And again, there's a measure of truth in that. Um, but if we get to the point of thinking that as long as I do those things, I can control my life in such a way that nothing bad will ever happen to me, you're deceiving yourself. If you really believe that, you're either very young or very naive. And many of us in this room are probably both. You don't have to look at the world very long to realize that's just not true, right? Like, the people who were attacked in France were out to dinner. They were at a concert. They didn't do anything to deserve the things that have happened to them. And if you just watch the news, if you just live life for a few years in the world, you realize that unjust and senseless suffering happens all the time. In fact, it can often happen to people who are suffering for the very good things that they are trying to do. And yet we tend to convince ourselves, yeah, but that'll never be me, right? That's just not the case. Now, I'm not saying this to be uh, some kind of Debbie Downer, you know, to really rain on your parade. But God says this to us in order that we'll prepare for it in order that we'll plan for the future. I was just down in Texas this past week for a few days, and I used to live there. I'm originally from Pennsylvania, lived in Texas for a few years. And if I had a friend moving from Texas to Philadelphia, I would be very excited for them. I'm just reminded that Philadelphia is a significant upgrade from Texas. I like it here a lot better than I like it in Texas. There's cool things about Texas, you know, but, um, but I'm glad I'm here. So I, I would be excited for them. I'd say, great, this is glad, this is, I'm glad you're coming. But there are some things you need to know if you're going to prepare yourself for what life in Philadelphia is going to be like. For example, there's this white stuff that falls from the sky. It's called snow. Literally, we had students at, at the college that I worked at in Texas from San Antonio who had never seen snow in their lives. They were 18, never TV. That was, all, that was all the snow that they had seen. So, okay, there's this stuff called snow. Sometimes the temperature drops below freezing. Like, not just in the freezer, but outside. The temperature that you stand in is actually below freezing. So, I, I'm not telling you this to deter you. I'm just saying you should prepare. You should buy a jacket, for example, like a winter jacket, a thick one, not that North Face shell thing that you wear when it gets under 50 degrees. 
for those couple weeks that it does in Texas. You have to prepare. You have to prepare for difficulty that's coming ahead. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants you to prepare for the future. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at three keys to planning for the future. The first, you have to decide who you're living for. The second, you have to look further down the line. And the third, you have to look outward. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4. I'll be reading in verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So first, you have to decide who you're living for. In verse 1, Peter begins by drawing us to the sufferings of Christ. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Christ suffered in the flesh. And the way that Jesus suffered in the flesh is he suffered for doing good. When Jesus comes to earth, he's coming with a purpose from God to love and to seek those who had run from him. Instead of coming for judgment, he came to bring them back to God. And yet because of the very good things he was doing, good things like healing the sick, forgiving the lost, um, drawing people to himself, spending time with the outcasts of society. The teachers of his time who loved their tradition more than they loved God himself persecuted him, put him through suffering, and eventually killed him. So Jesus suffered himself for actually the good things that he was doing. When he looked at his life, the commitment that he made was that whatever it cost him, he was going to do good. He was going to live righteously and live the way that God had called him to live. If you're still kind of believing that idea that if you basically do good, good things will happen to you, this is the one glaring counterexample that you can look to. Jesus is the only person who can actually say, I have lived a good life. I have treated everyone rightly. I have loved others. I have done what is right. And yet he suffers and dies for the very good things that he was seeking to do. So what Peter is saying here is not only will suffering in general come, not only will difficulty come to your lives, but if you're a Christian, you should especially expect it. Because look at who you're following. It's like if you're hiking up a mountain, oftentimes on your way up, you'll see people coming back down. And you'll ask them, like, oh, how is it at the top? And if they tell you, like, oh, it gets, gets a, little, a little wacky up there, you know, those, the rocks at the end are kind of crazy, then you should assume that that's going to be the same for you, right? You're following the same path that they just went on. 
And that's what Peter's saying about Jesus. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, if you're a Christian, that's the path that you're following. So you should expect the same things. So the question then becomes, are you willing to arm yourself with the same way of thinking? If Jesus' way of thinking was obedience to God, bringing glory to God, whatever the cost, are you willing to think the same way about the rest of your life? When you think about following Jesus, is it, yes, I want to obey him for the rest of my time from here on out, no matter what suffering, no matter what cost that's going to bring into my life? If so, what you're doing there is you're making a decisive break with sin. And that's why Peter can say this crazy thing in verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're living in such a way that you're saying, I will obey Jesus no matter what it costs me, then you can live for the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, as verse 2 says, but for the will of God. Now, the interesting thing in verse 2 is that it suggests that there's only two options for things that you can be living for. So it's common today, and maybe some of you feel this way, to say, I'm not into the whole religion thing. I don't have problems with Jesus. He seems like a nice enough guy, but I'm not really into that. Um, I'm not really living for anything. I just, you know. What this passage suggests is that everyone is living for something. And if it's not for the will of God, it's ultimately for human passions. So if you want to consider what it would look like to follow Jesus, you don't have to consider really, could I be the kind of person that would worship something? Could I be a religious type of individual? I'd encourage you to start instead by asking, what am I already living for? Is there something in my life that I'm already giving myself to? And is that thing actually worth giving my life to? Because what it probably is, and what this passage suggests it is, is it's a human passion. Now, human passions are something that we've seen show up throughout the book of 1 Peter, if you've been with us. And we've kind of said, this is a desire, but not the normal kind. Like, a lot of us want different things, but this is a desire that's become more of a demand, something that we need, something that's taken the place of God in our lives, something that we give our ultimate allegiance, hopes, trusts, fears, and joy to. And human passions, by their nature, aren't bad in and of themselves. But notice what verse 2 is saying. It's the, the issue is, what are you living for? Are you living for the human passions or for the will of God? Augustine, who was a Christian in the early hundreds uh, in the church, said that defined sin as disordered loves. It's that you love things, but you love them in the wrong order. So, for example, uh, sometimes at night I get home from work or whatnot, and I want to just relax, watch a football game, whatever else. And my wife works, uh, gets up really early in the morning because she's a school teacher and has to commute like 45 minutes to an hour. And so sometimes at night, it really serves her if I pack her lunch for her, just because that way she can shower and get to bed at a reasonable time for how early we get up. But that's conflicting in that moment with my love for something else. I really love sitting on the couch right now, screwing around on my iPhone and watching TV. And so there's a problem there if what I choose to not serve her the love is out of order. It's okay to love relaxing. I, who doesn't like to be able to sit down and unwind after a long day? But I, I love it in that moment more than I love serving her. And that's what a human passion is. It's a disordered love. It's something that's good, but that has gotten out of whack in your life. And what happens with suffering when difficulty comes into your life is it exposes what you're living for. It shows you what the order 
of your loves is. Because often in times of difficulty and times of suffering, it will look like there are easy ways out of it. And if you choose in those moments to take a way out that involves sinning against God and disobeying him, what that's showing you is that that human passion has gained first place in your life. It's moved up in the pecking order where love for God was supposed to inhabit it. The most obvious example, perhaps, is um, the Christians of Peter's time may have actually faced death for their profession of faith in Christ. So what he's saying to them is, expect that to come. Expect suffering to come. And in that moment, you're going to have a choice to live for human passions, to live for your comfort, your ease, or to live for the will of God and maintain your profession. Of course, you don't want to suffer. Of course, you want to be comfortable. But is that going to overrule living for the will of God? And yet, that's not the example that he actually gives us in this passage, though, of course, it's a legitimate application. Where he takes us in verse 3 is to some different examples. He says, the time that is past suffices. So if you're living for the will of God, you're leaving all this other stuff in the past for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And these are the examples he gives us. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You can basically group those into two categories. The way you handle sex and the way you handle alcohol. Now, why would he bring up those two things in the context of a passage on suffering? Why, when you plan for your future, would those be two particular areas of your life you have to think about? Well, it's because both of them seem to provide relief from suffering. They just feel good. And so if you're in a difficult situation in your life, these things are going to look really attractive to you. I mean, how many times in movies or in your life is it after a hard day, what do you need? You need a shot of rum or something like that. You, you need to drown it for a little bit and just drink it off for the night. Or sex is going to look particularly attractive to you. And what those things both do is they give you the feeling that life is okay. They let you relax a little bit without forcing you to actually engage with whatever is going on. So imagine demands at work are putting a heavy stress on you. What does alcohol give you in that moment if you overindulge it? It gives you a sense of relief, but then you wake up the next morning and all the problems at your work are exactly the same. It solved nothing. It made you feel better for a little bit, and the next morning, not only did it not make your life better, chances are it made it worse. Like maybe now you're hungover, maybe you're late for work, and you feel like you have to go back to that well again and again and again and again. And sex is the same way. It provides this temporary fake kind of escape in the midst of difficult times. And so you have to decide ahead of time, who are you living for? Are you going to live to escape, to satisfy your human passion, or are you going to live for the will of God? Now, if you've been around our church for any amount of time, if you've visited one of our city groups, which is one of the best ways to get a picture of our church, you know we're not like the church that's going to browbeat you about this stuff. I don't think anyone would describe us as fundamentalists here. Like, if you've gone to one of our groups, they've probably met at a bar sometime. You know, people are going to go out and have a beer together. Um, We're not real, like, icky about sex or whatever. We love marriage. We celebrate sex within marriage. Um, That's not really the kind of church that we are. But my fear is that as a result of that, we've tended to think of ourselves as very free in these areas. And there can be a sense of, well, we're not the prudish church. You know, we're not that fundamentalist backwoods church that's going to get all hardcore on you about drinking and sex and that kind of stuff. And yet we come to passages like this in the Bible where this kind of conduct is described as something that for a Christian, for someone who's living for the will of God, should be in the past tense of their lives. 
And so we're, so we're going to affirm the goodness of alcohol. We're going to affirm the goodness of sex, but that they actually be enjoyed within the boundaries that God has set up for them. And my fear is that when I say drunkenness, when you read this passage, what comes into your mind is public urination and vomiting in the streets. And you're like, hey, I'm not doing that, you know? I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the really crazy types. But these words and the kind of description, I mean, one of them in this list is drinking parties. That, that's just a, a party, you know? Like, it, it's not even the, the act of you being the one who's throwing up or whatever else. So I'm not saying stay away from all things, you know, the world and um, don't stain yourself and that kind of thing. Um, but th- there does seem to be a command here that this should be an area of our lives where we're living for God's will and not for human passions. And one of the hardest things about that is the reality that this passage goes on to describe. It says that when you live for the will of God and not for human passions, when you decide that you're living for Jesus and not to satisfy yourself, this is what happens. In verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Especially those of you who maybe became Christians later in life, you can relate to this. It's like you used to always go out and party with your friends and get drunk with them and hook up with the girl or guy or whatever, and now all of a sudden you don't do those things. And your friends are like, well, what happened? Are you like one of those Jesus freaks now? You know, are you like... The people that I've seen on TV are that special about it. Did you join some kind of cult? You know, it's, it's really weird for them because what, what changed? You know, what gives? Um, and out of fear of that, oftentimes, that's the times when we feel most tempted to overindulge alcohol or to feel like we have to have a cool story about the girl we hooked up with or something like that. I can tell you for me right now that that's my biggest struggle. The times when I am most tempted and the times in the past when I have given in to overindulging alcohol, haven't generally, for me, been times when I'm just sitting at home by myself. It's been times when I'm out with the guys, man, you know, it's, it's guy night, you know, like, come on, let's, let's hang out, let's have a good time, and hey, here's, you know, this guy's buying rounds now, and, you know, sure, it's like my fifth round, and I know for me, about two is where I can handle it, and not be, like, out of control, and so he's going up to the bar, yeah, let, let me get you a shot, man, we're all doing shots, hey, it's all of us together, and it's like, guys I went to high school with and grew up with, and so, like, you know, I love that feeling of kind of fitting in and belonging, and here's another drink, and here's another drink. And it becomes really tempting in those moments to make that time about, how can I simply just have as good a time as possible, and how can I fit in with these guys? Because I know that if I don't, and look, we live in a pretty, like, tolerant age, so most people probably aren't going to, like, bash you if you don't join them. They'll probably say, like, oh, that's cool, you know, you do your thing, I'll do mine. But you feel a sense of distance, right? If you're not, the, if you're not in, if you're not on the in crowd, if you're not one of the guys, you, they may not be insulting you, but they may just be able to push you out of that social circle a little bit, and you feel like an outsider with the people around you. And so many of you, even though you're not throwing up in the streets, you know that that next drink is going to take you to the point where the main thing influencing your actions is the alcohol and not the Holy Spirit and not God's will himself. And that's the issue I'd encourage you to think about when you're in those situations. It's what am I living for right now? What is my priority in my time at this bar with these guys or at this party or at this tailgate? Is my goal right now the same as everyone around me? which is how can I maximize my fun for the next hour or two? Or is my goal to live for the will of God, whatever that's going to look like, even if it's going to look like these people rejecting me, kicking me out of their friend circle, or just keeping me at a distance that they don't keep their other friends? 
in the time when, I'm temp- when you're tempted to get on the computer to view sexually explicit material, when you're tempted to turn to your relationship with the guy or girl that you were with, and you think, that's what they want. They, they want that from me. This will be a great escape. What are you living for in that moment? Have you decided in times of difficulty who you're going to live for? For your human passions, for your desires, that will continually let you down and continually take more from you, or for the will of God itself? If the answer, if you think about your future and you think about obeying God, whatever it will cost you, if the answer is no, I don't think I can do that, if the way you think about your relationship with God is yes, I want him, I, I like some of these things about Christianity, you like the comfort that it provides, perhaps, I, I've had these conversations with people, they like the community, perhaps you've gotten to know some people here and I think the people here are awesome, so of course you would enjoy spending time with them and hanging out with them. And you may be willing to even give things up in order to get those things. So we can operate on a kind of cost-benefit scale with God. Okay, you're willing to give up a couple hours on Sunday. Um, perhaps you're even willing to give up some of your drinking habits and some of um, the, the more you know, outward forms of immorality. But the hardest thing for you to give up is you. And that's what God's calling for in this passage. To be a Christian, at the heart of it, is a surrender of your will. It's a surrender of your ability to say, this is what I want right now, and so I'm going to take it. If you think of your relationship with God as, yes, I'll obey, but not if it costs me my friendships. Not if I have to feel pain and can't turn to alcohol or turn to sex to soothe it. Then you're still missing something about the kind of calling that God places on our lives. To live for his will, and not for human passions. And yet one of the hardest parts of that is there's certain realities of it that you just can't get around. So like, in reality, something this passage never denies is that people can actually hurt you. Like in a very literal sense, for people who live in areas of intense persecution, they can be killed. Like living for the will of God and not human passions, you can die. For many of you, it's going to look more like Yeah, you can be made fun of. They can call you names. They can say things to you. They can kick you out of their friend circle, not invite you to the next party. You may not get to do the cool things that you see them doing. And so how do you handle that? Well, that brings us to our second point. As you see that in your future, as you see the possibility of difficulty, you have to look further into the future. Look where verse 5 takes us. After saying that those around you will malign you, will insult you. In verse 5, he says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. His, the basic comfort that God wants to give you is that judgment is coming. Now, that doesn't usually sound comforting, right? It's one of those words, judgment, that doesn't have like this great ring to it, like, ah, yes, judgment is coming. No, we hear judgment and we think, ooh, that sounds bad, you know? But throughout the Bible, judgment is a comfort to those who suffer, to those who are oppressed. Because those who are under oppression, those who are powerless, have no power to to enact justice in this situation. And the good news for them is that there is someone who does. There's someone who does have the power to judge those who wrong them, and he's going to. He's ready, it says, to judge the living and the dead. 
when the insults of people seem really big, when not being able to hang out with those, that certain group seems really big, when not fitting in seems really big, it's really good news to know there's something bigger. There's someone bigger than the people around you. And that's God himself. And that's the, he's the one who they will give an account to, ultimately. And the only way you can really view this judgment with expectation is if you know that you won't be judged. If you know your verdict will not be condemnation. So here's the problem with this, okay? You read a passage that judgment is coming. And if I'm honest with myself, I haven't done this that well. Like, t- take a snapshot of my, of my life, you know, or a wide-angle lens of my life. I am not a person that you would say generally lives for the will of God and not for human passions. There are many times in my life where I've chosen to live for human passions. So how can I, in the midst of that, and I, I've actually been the person, I, I came to Christ later in life, I've been the person who made fun of Christians for not doing the things that I was doing. I had a friend in high school who went through like a phase where he was really into his church and he would invite us to like weird events at his church where they would try to evangelize us and stuff. It's bad method, don't do it. But, um, you know, it's like, hey, we're going to have a cookout and here it comes. So, um, <clears throat> but anyway, I, I would make fun of guys like him. You know, I, I, would, I would get rid of them. And so I, I'm one of the guys in this passage that it says will be judged. So how can we look forward to judgment coming? And the, the place that Peter has consistently pointed us is that Jesus has taken the judgment for you. That if you know him, if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him, you can know that there is no condemnation coming for you because all the condemnation fell on Jesus. He was the only one who was actually innocent of the things we're reading here. And yet instead of receiving the blessing, he received the curse so that you and I could receive the blessing if we place our trust in him. Through that, you can actually look forward. You can live for the will of God and not for human passions, knowing that the people who reject you will answer to someone far bigger and far greater who loves and is for you. Look further down the line. And in fact, this further down the line that we're looking forward to, verse 7 suggests that it's close. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, this isn't one of those, um, you know, sometimes I read this passage and I think, wow, he got egg on his face. (laughs) 2,000 years later and Jesus still hasn't come back, you know. Uh, That's not what he's saying. The the writers of the Bible don't tend to think so strictly in terms of clock time. They're thinking in terms of God's plan throughout the whole Bible. Again, for those of you who actually use these old-fashioned book things, there's a lot of pages before this part of the Bible, and that means there's, there's not much left, you know. All the things that God has been doing from the creation of the world until the time Jesus returns are near. Jesus has already come. He's already lived the perfect life. He's already died. He's already been reasoned. The only thing left is for him to return, to judge the living and the dead. So that's what he's saying. He's saying that that time is near because there's nothing left to be done until Jesus returns. And so what do we do with that? He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What he's saying is you have to live with some awareness of the times that you live in. You have to live with an understanding that Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. And that means you can't just play around with this stuff. With sin in your life, with the temptations that you face, it's not just stuff to be trifled with. It's not stuff to say, yeah, but it's not that big of a deal. You know, let's not get all hardcore about this stuff. 
We live in a time where Jesus is returning at any moment to judge the living and the dead. And because this judgment is coming, we are called to live godly lives in the present age as we wait for it. And to live in such a way that others will see our lives and glorify God through us. Those are the times we live in. And what do you do with that? Well, he doesn't say, think that way and then work really hard to make sure you're the one who's there. He says, for the sake of your prayers. It should drive us to pray. It should drive us as we realize the stakes, the name of God, the glory of God, death and life hang in the balance for those of us who live at this point in history. And instead of letting that drive you to be scared and to work really hard to make sure it's not you, let it drive you to God himself because we're not powerful enough to do it. We're not powerful enough to stop it. We have to go to him in prayer and talk to him and just plead with him to be the one to keep us till the end and to save the people around us so that they won't experience that same judgment. Many of you want to pray. Many of you have some desire to pray, but you struggle to do it consistently. One of the worst things you can do, if that's you, is to focus a lot on prayer. What this passage directs you to do is to focus on the times. Focus on the need of the world around you and the opportunity we have to intercede and talk to God about the things that we're experiencing. See how hard it is to actually live for God's will and not for human passions. So that you have to run to him. I, I can't not go to him if I realize how impossible it is to live for his will and not for human passions. When people want to malign me or kick me out of their friend group or whatever else, and I want to be one of the guys, I need to go to him in that moment because judgment is coming. and I need him to keep me till the end. If I want to see my friends not experience that judgment, I need to go to him. And talk to him. It's like if I had a friend coming up here from Texas, and I kept trying to convince them, no, you're really going to need that jacket, you know? And let me show you the jacket. So let's take you over to Eddie Bauer, you know? I'll show you. They got this down stuff on the inside, and it's really nice. And some of them you can even collapse, and they'll make a pillow, you know? Like, really great. He doesn't get why he needs a jacket. Why do I keep talking to him about the jacket? I'll tell you what. Fly up here in February. You'll buy the jacket. Because you understand you need it. That's how you start praying. Start to see the world you live in, and the opportunity we have to go to God on its behalf. We look outward to him. We pray. We go to him and depend on him before we go out and try to fix all the problems because we see the world we live in. We look outward to him, and then the next thing we do is we look outward to others. Starting in verse 8. He says, above all, so we're pretty late in the letter, and now we get above all. This is, this is what I want you to focus on. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified, through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. One of the best ways that you can live for God's will and no longer for human passions is to get your eyes off of yourself. And that's one of the hardest things to do when difficulty comes into your life. I mean, look at this. How does he instruct us to do it in verse 9? Show hospitality 
to one another. Have you ever been going through a really hard season? You know, life's just crazy busy maybe, boss is breathing down your neck, you've got a big exam coming up, stuff with family back home is really complicated, marriage is not going well right now, kids are acting up, going crazy. And then you think about like having someone over for dinner. Like, really? I can barely keep my head above water and you want me to like cook a meal for someone else and like entertain them and have them into my house? But if you choose to do that in those moments, do you know what you're saying? You're saying, my human passion's not the thing I'm living for. Sure, it would feel better tonight to just chill, to just relax and hang out on my couch and be totally consumed with myself and my own rest. And I'm not saying you don't need that sometimes. But the direction this passage is taking us is one of the best ways to prepare for difficulty, one of the best ways to handle difficulty is to stop focusing so much on your difficulty and to focus outward on the people around you. Say, who needs, who needs to be served right now? Whose kids can I offer to babysit for them? Who could really benefit if I just cooked them a meal and brought it over to their place tonight? Who would it help if I just did their laundry for them or took their trash out for them? Who can I serve tonight? And as you take your eyes off of yourself and look to them, you find this freedom comes that your problems don't seem quite as big as they used to because they're not getting all of your attention. And then the second thing you do beyond showing hospitality is you use your gifts. In verse 10, it says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. You take the things that God has gifted you with and you point them toward the other people in this room. You point them to one another. It's always significant when you see these one another verses in the Bible. These letters are written to churches. And what he's saying is if you want to start loving, if you want to start looking outward, start with the people next to you. Start with the people in this room. And consider, how can I use the gifts God has given me to serve others? And in this passage, it's kind of nice because it gives us two broad categories that you can think about your gifts in and affirms that both of them are equally given to us by God. They're speaking gifts and they're serving gifts. So some of you really love studying and understanding the Bible and being able to communicate with your words to other people. You love having conversations with people about their questions and directing them to relevant passages of Scripture and working through objections and understanding things. You have a speaking gift. And God would say you should use that as one who speaks the oracles of God. Use your speaking gift to speak God's words from Scripture, to communicate the truth of Scripture to others. Now, most of us are familiar with the fact that that's a gifting. If you've been around church for any amount of time, the speaking gifts are the ones that are usually up front, um, that, that's where guys like me are again. If you're not convinced that I have a speaking gift yet, that's okay. But uh, bear with me. So um, it, those are the ones we tend to highlight. And as a result, people who don't have speaking gifts often feel guilty and feel like there's nothing I can contribute to this church. But there is another category of gifts here. Some of you are less thinkers and speakers and more doers. You're good at organizing things. You're good at planning things. You're good at executing tasks and saying, hey, you know what, I'm not going to be the guy who's going to get up front and talk for a half hour, but I can set up those pipe and drapes. Or I can play a musical instrument. Or I can watch and take care of the kids while they're here. And what I want to encourage you with is that at City Light, we try to provide opportunities for people to use each of these kinds of gifts. So if you have a speaking gift, for example, I would really encourage you to engage with the city group and to go to your city group leader and say, you know what, I love talking to people about Jesus. I love these discussions. Could, could I try leading one sometime? Would you train me? Would you help me learn how to lead one? Don't just go to them and say, hey, give me a couple weeks now and, and, and let me start leading stuff. 
But ask them to help you. Just say, hey, I would love to grow in this. Could you help me learn how to? If you have a serving gift, a doer, check that on your Connect card. We have a serving box there. We'd love to get you connected with any of our teams that make this Sunday gathering a possibility. Go to your city group leader and say, hey, I love planning things. Can I just plan something? Can I plan like a social night time for us to just hang out, get to know each other better? Or service project, you know, I'd love to do a, do a block cleanup or serve at a rescue mission or something like that. L- let me plan something like that. Your city group leader will love you. <laughs> You're like, yes, please, I want you to do these things. Um, just go to them and tell them the opportunities and the gifts that you've identified in yourself. And if you don't know, if you're like, eh, I don't know, speaking, serving, which one do I do? Just try them both. Try them both and get some people around you and have them tell you, hey, did that go well? Was that actually helpful or, or not? Um, the default should be, let's just try this stuff. And if you have one, it doesn't mean you get a free pass on the other. So for example, if I say I have a speaking gift, therefore I don't have to ever do anything, that's not legit. God still calls us to use even the things we're weak in to serve one another. But it just makes sense that the things you're good at would be the things that you focus on and the things that you use, all for the glory of God. Lastly, I'll just say, this is part of why we do emphasize covenant membership at City Light. Because if you're going to start showing hospitality to one another, if you're going to start serving one another, you have to know who one another is. You have to be able to fill in that blank with who, who are the actual people that you're going to start doing these things with. And what you're saying in covenant membership is, it's these people, it's this church that I'm going to start practicing those things with. So if you want any more info about that, you can put that on your Connect card as well. All of this ultimately is for the glory of God, meaning we do these things so that people will see him, people will see his majesty. When you look forward to your future, don't try to convince yourself that difficulty is not coming. Don't try to convince yourself you can just do it well enough that nothing bad will happen to you. It's going to come. And if you're a Christian, you should especially expect it in your future. Instead, come to Jesus because he's the one who willingly suffered in your place and brought you to God so that you can look forward to a day when he will come to right every wrong, to judge everyone who's ever abused you or accused you of wrongdoing simply for doing the right thing. You can live for him and for his glory And use your gifts to serve one another. So to look to your future, decide who you're living for. Is it the will of God or human passions? Look further down the line to the day when Jesus will return to vindicate those who have trusted in him. And use your gifts to serve one another as you look outward.